Hi, I'm Robert McGinnis. I'm the driver of the number nine Palto Network Synchros Racing for Mazda car. And welcome to the Book and the Bird Show. show and i'm sure you're all just absolutely stunned right now that we managed to go two straight weeks and have a show hey you know <laughs> it's been occasionally it happens it's been kind of bad lately <laughs> i fear two weeks from now we may have another weekend of a problem yeah we'll see how that shakes out you know this is what happens when our life gets busy yeah and all of a sudden, things start happening on Sundays. Well, yeah. The problem is that things started happening on Sundays, and we didn't adjust our Saturdays to accommodate things happening on Sundays. Yeah, we need to sort that bit out, too. Instead of, you know, let's pack more stuff onto Saturdays. Onto Sundays. No, we packed, this weekend, we packed more stuff onto Saturday. Well, until, See? until November 10th, my Saturdays are very packed. Anyway, we have results from Fantasy GP for Japan, so let's play those real quick. Okay. Suzuka was Formula One's final stop in Asia for 2018, and in the league, Michael's Mach 5 Racing won the week with 167 points, with Patricia's The Bird Team in second with 156 points. Phil's Team Rocket was in third with 147 points, while Agro's Puppet Racing was fourth with 143 points. Richard's Fly Fast team was fifth with 135 points, and it was another hard week for the boy, who had just 66 points. In the overall standings, Patricia's The Bird team holds on to first with 2,195 points, and Phil and Michael are tied for second with 2,164 points. Agro is in fourth with 2,051 points. Richard's Fly Fast team is now solidly in fifth with 1,767 points, while the boy is in sixth with 1,690 points. You can still test your predictions against ours every week by going to fantasygp.com and entering the league code 1483491. Not becoming Japanese. No, I thought that was a little trite. <laughs> and we've already done Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. Okay. Although that was kind of like the pipe organ version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what they had in the karaoke tracks. No, we, we something uniquely Japanese but very different. Yes. Um, so what's the difference between me and you and Phil in the standings? It's like under 100 points, isn't it? Yeah, it's under 100 points. Phil and I are tied right now. I know. So I'm, you two I'm, are. I'm coming for you, man. <laughs> um, and clearly, we need to have a discussion with the boy regarding his current strategy for picks because it ain't working. I have a sneaking feeling that he has not put his predictions in for the last two weeks. He told no, because I spoke to him and he told me that he did it. Oh, okay. But I suspect that when you're picking the same thing across the board, and then that driver doesn't produce, it kind of hurts. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Because you have no hope of pulling it out in any other section. Well, yes. But you can't fault the boy for being a diehard single driver fan. Yeah. He's just not the right driver fan. <laughs> Did I say that on my out loud yes, voice? Yes, that, w- that was in fact your out loud voice. Oh. I'm totally a supportive mother. Maybe. Pick the right driver. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to have a conversation with him. But other news out of Japan. There actually wasn't a whole lot. It was kind of a sleepy week, or this past week was oh, kind of sleepy. Oh, come on. There was amazing coverage of the Susie and Toto Wolf drive in the AMG Mercedes around the track. All right, I don't know about amazing coverage. I mean, okay, there was the a brief... Okay, eye rolls I've ever seen there in my you life. Go. There, there was a brief clip from it on um, Channel 4's coverage on Sunday. 
a very brief clip, and that was Susie driving and Toto in a passenger seat, and Toto explaining that the last time that he let her drive him around a racetrack, he made her get out and he walked the two miles back at Laguna Seca, which leads me to believe that it was fairly early in the lap. Yes, and probably very early in their marriage. That's possible, too. Um, they, they've clearly, as Toto points out, grown in their relationship. No, that he, Susie pointed that out. Was that it was Susie, Susie that, that said, that, that just think how far in, our marriage has come. Uh, yes, that, you're right. That the last time you let me drive you around the track, you made me stop, and you got out and walked two miles back to the pits. Well, if you check Mercedes' um, Twitter feed, the Mercedes AMG F1 Twitter feed, they posted the full video. It's possible it's over on Facebook. I didn't go look. But they posted the full video of both of them driving because first Susie drove and then Toto drove. Mm-hmm. And Susie wasn't really appreciative of Toto's driving skills. And Toto wasn't that appreciative of Susie's, so I think it's fair. I, well, what I th one of the things that I thought was interesting is that Mercedes was kind enough to not share a whole lot of Toto's reaction through Susie's drive of the lap. But they showed us a lot of Susie's reaction to Toto's drive of the lap. <laughs> well, most of them were, break, 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 break! <laughs> yeah. You kind of have to wonder if that uh, right side break was not working in her car. Well, there was that. But she also looked at Toto at the end and said, well, how much of that lap were you actually in control? Yeah. Now, not what, a whole lot. What we didn't find out was lap times. No, they didn't that share lap times. That might have been interesting. They did not share lap times. But I will say they didn't bend the car either, so... That... I should hope not. That was a fairly expensive Mercedes that they were driving. Well, given the the speed Toto was going into all of the corners... We that, think. That, ...that Susie said was ridiculous. Toto, that's too fast. Toto, that's too fast. <laughs> um, then you got to imagine, because you know, we see this with Formula One cars going around Suzuka, there are some corners that bite. There are. Uh, Nico Hulkenberg experienced one of those corners that bite. Yeah, a couple of... Well, th the difference, though, also was that when those drivers ran into trouble this weekend, rain was part of the issue. The, the curbs were wet. When Toto and Susie drove it, it was, it dry. was dry. So there was that. But anyway, um, I strongly recommend... Uh, Basically, every married couple out there needs to watch this because <laughs> it is a picture of what happens in the passenger seat when your partner is driving. The, the one thing, the, the last bit that I have on this, and, and I got to say it was kind of cool to see that Susie Wolf makes tire squealing noises when she drives. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing better would have been vroom vroom noises. <laughs> yeah. She may have been thinking that. I don't know. But yeah professional race car driver and she makes tire squealing noises as she's going around the track hey <laughs> i have said it before i can i'll say it again i love that woman i just do <laughs> she is awesome in the extreme well we'll hear more from Susie later we'll get some comments from Susie later about our last story the only real story i have from this weekend at the track was um, comes from Fernando Alonso. Oh, so it's going to be upbeat and positive. Well, as you recall, the last two years that Fernando drove at Suzuka for in Formula One, he used the opportunity to vent rather publicly over the radio during the race about Honda's power. Yes. Well, this year he didn't have that whipping post. So who did he go after this year? Instead, he decided to go after the FIA and F1. Oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. Now, this was in response to him getting a penalty for leaving the track and gaining an advantage in his battle with Lance Stroll. Okay. Um, the same situation where Lance also got a penalty um, for causing a collision. Well, Alonzo radioed back to the team as this whole thing went on. He complained and argued about Lance pushing him off and then heard about the penalty and came up on the radio, and his response was, shame on you, Formula One. Shame on you. 
Well done. Well done. We can push people around. Well done. Shame on you, Formula One. Okay, so it didn't go his way, and he's complaining. Pretty much. I mean, from what little we saw of that exchange, because there was, at least on the Channel 4 coverage, there wasn't a lot of video. Actually, on the Channel 4 coverage, we watched the world feed, so I'm betting that nobody really saw a great replay of just what went on there. Mm -hmm. It was a little questionable, at least the penalty for Fernando, because of the fact that he left the track because Lance pushed him off. Right. And there was the contact for that, and Lance got penalized. As a result of him leaving the track, he got the advantage and managed to get ahead of Lance. But let's look at the reason why he ended up off the track in the first place. Yeah. That, that's, that's where it, it's – I mean, I get it's a little frustrating, but – Yes, but I think that the question becomes, if Lance hadn't pushed him off the track, would he have had – that spot would he have overtaken lance and i think that's why the penalty came around was to unwind that whole scenario i think yeah there there hasn't been a lot of clarification on that whole situation that happened there but yeah once again fernando had to go and vent and Eh, well he's gonna vent until he's done well, I, I think what will be really interesting is that should Fernando move over to say, oh, IndyCar, and he's faced with similar marshalling situations, is that going to possibly flip the light switch that that's just racing? I don't know, because, you know, Fernando's world is surrounded by Fernando. True. I just don't think that that's going to happen. But if Fernando tries to run me over at Mid-Ohio on his scooter— I will put him in the same category as one Pablo Montoya. Oh, I thought you were just going to put him in the wall. I won't put him in the wall. He's oh. probably pretty tiny. It just won't. It won't make any good impact to put him in the wall. Okay. No, I might stand further in his way so that he runs me over and I can collect a million dollars. But you know, that's or as he goes past, you're just going to yell GP two engine, GP two engine. <laughs> 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 and watch all the IndyCar people look at me like I have lost my ever-loving mind. Hey, Fernando, what loser team are you going to sign with next? Ooh. <laughs> no. Okay. That so, only works if he's, like, losing IndyCar, by the way. Um, of course, I will be standing there in the um, Flying Waffle is Unstoppable t-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> Because hopefully Stoffel Van Dorn comes over to IndyCar also, (laughs) and he goes on to our stocked list. So anyway, moving on. While we were talking about a driver who is moving out of Formula One, how about a driver that is moving into Formula One? Okay, who are we going to talk about? The, The driver season got a little firmer up with Williams announcing a replacement to Lance Stroll. Yes. Now, nobody's announced that Lance Stroll's actually leaving, but Williams has announced a replacement for Lance Stroll, so we know where that's going. (laughs) Well, here's the question. Lance hasn't announced that he has a seat for next season. What is the chances that Daddy's team is not giving him a seat? Wouldn't that be awesome? It it would be, but the reality is you know that that chance is somewhere between slim to non-existent. I know, but it would be so awesome. Yeah. Well, if here, actually, along those lines, though, Lance has been driving on a three-year contract right. that he's only in year two of. Mm-hmm. So for Williams to go and announce a new driver right now would have to mean one of two things have happened. Either they're willing to go and pay the penalty to boot Lance, or Lance has already come to them and said, I'm leaving. Yeah. I mean, in reality. Well, knowing Williams' financial state, I don't think this was a situation where Williams said, get out. No, I don't think so either. Um, But if Lance's side broke the contract, Williams stood to get money. Yes. Too, because Daddy would have had to pay to get him out of that contract. Yeah. There's always money changing hands in Formula One. 
And as we learned in Watergate, follow the money. So anyway, William's new driver is um, George Russell, who will become the third British driver in Formula One next year. Uh, he's been driving in F2. He's actually been fairly successful this year. Um, and, of course, I don't have his record up in this one. I have the whole moves of where the drivers have been mm-hmm. or, and where they're going. Um, I thought he was, like, second in GP in uh, Formula 2. Yeah, I think he's he, – well, he's been fighting pretty close with Lando Norris for that. Yeah. So it, it's between the two of them, I think. Um, he's 20 years old. He's uh, affiliated with the Mercedes team, yet another strong driver coming out of the Mercedes group. Um to some extent, I think this signing is Williams and Williams' personality. To another, I think this is not a great plan for Williams. Why? What do you think they should have done? Take an Ocon? Well, okay, look, if their driver's lineup goes the way it is right now, we've got rookie George Russell, who has not driven in Formula One. He's done a couple of tests, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. That's all his experience is. And Sergey Sorotkin, who's on year two. Correct. You have no experience. Right. Which has been one of Williams' challenges the last two seasons now. There's no experienced driver alongside of them. At least with somebody like an Esteban Ocon that you bring in, there's an extra year or so of experience that comes with him. You've got somebody who comes in who is alongside a very experienced driver mm-hmm. and did well, not just alongside a rookie driver and beat the pants off of him. Right. So to me, Ocon would make better sense in one of those seats over at Williams, but Williams is also known, and that's why I think that this makes sense for Williams, they're known for bringing in young talent. Right. And, and growing that talent. It's the issue of, you need to have some experience along with them. That's where I think the, they've fallen apart again. You need the person to grow the talent. I mean, even when they brought in Valtteri and put him alongside Pastor Maldonado, say whatever you want about Pastor, Pastor had some experience on him at that point. Yes, his experience was bouncing off of other cars, but he had some experience. <laughs> Everybody is an example. Exactly. Some stand as an example of what not to do. I mean, right now, in George's case, that example is do better than that guy. Mm-hmm. But is that going to grow him as a driver? I don't know. Well, we have to see him drive because we haven't honestly seen him drive. Yeah. He could be a phenomenal talent, and this is a complete win for them. So... In terms of what the grid is shaping up to look like right now, over at Mercedes, we're confirmed. Nothing changes there. It's going to be Lewis and Valtteri. Over at Ferrari, confirm Sebastian Vettel paired with Charles Leclerc. Over at Red Bull, confirmed Max Verstappen and Pierre Gasly. Renault, we have that confirmed pairing of Nico Hulkenberg and Daniel Ricciardo. That, I think, is going to be an interesting pairing. I really do. I think for all the talk that we have heard about how great and how undersung, and we've done the same thing, undersung Nico Hulkenberg is as a driver. How he fares paired up against Daniel Ricciardo, I think, will be very, very interesting. I think it will be. <clears throat> Haas is confirmed with Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen. K-Mag Ro- again. Or Romain Grosjean, Grosjean, as nobody calls him. There's nobody else. <laughs> um, over at McLaren, Carlos Sainz and Lando Norris. No relation to the Star Wars Empire. None whatsoever. Um, this is another one I think we're going to really get to see the measure of two drivers. I really do. I think you're right. Um, Force India is unconfirmed at this point, but is expected to be Lance Stroll, obviously, and Sergio Perez. So my guess is that we're going to have this announcement either next week or in Mexico. Most likely Mexico, but it could be in in, um, in the run-up to the U.S. Grand Prix weekend. But that's the expectation. It'll be interesting. I mean, Lance is a Canadian. 
So it would make sense if they want to confirm Lance at the U.S. Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. And whereas they are, everyone is predicting that it will be the run-up to Mexico or at the Mexico Grand Prix um, that will get Perez. I mean, even Perez has said since, like, Singapore that, yeah, this is pretty much done. Yeah, so this is theatrics at this point. Yeah. So Toro Rosso is really where we only have the known open seat. We've got Daniel Kvyat back yet again for reasons completely unknown. Because they have nobody else that's breathing. But there are promising young drivers that they could have gone with. There are promising young drivers, but they're not in the Red Bull driver program. The Red Bull drivers can't qualify for licenses. I'm not completely sure that Daniel Kvyat technically was still in a Red Bull driver program. They fired him. <clears throat> the only difference is I think that Ferrari turned around and, and either were about to cut him loose or her, had already told him that he was being cut loose for 19. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the only reason why I think they, they brought him on. Um, but Pascal Verline walked away. <clears throat> so that's our only other open seat right now is Ed Toro Rosso. Sauber is confirmed with Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio Giovinazzi. And Williams, again, confirmed George Russell and expected Sergei Sorotkin, but we don't know for sure. Right. So that's an unconfirmed seat, but the expectation, it's not quite as unknown as the second Toro Rosso seat. Yeah. So... So, you know, we're almost to the end of silly season. How do you feel about this silly season? You remember a couple of years ago we had like 70% of the grid was contracts were up and we were expecting this like wild and crazy silly season and it was everybody just got confirmed in their own teams. I mean, it was a nothing silly season. We've had some movement going around. We've had some surprises with Ricardo and Kimmy. Um, what do you think? How do you feel about silly season this year? This is what we've wanted. Okay. We, we wanted to have the what the heck just happened there moments. And we got that. I mean, we, we got that with Ricardo moving to Red Bull, Signs moving to McLaren. Ricardo moved or, to Renault. Me, Ricardo moving to Renault, thank you. Signs moving to McLaren, Kimmy being kept yet again. But going somewhere else, but being kept yet again. And um, Fernando <laughs> finally leaving Formula One. That's really what you wanted. I wanted Almost two people. As... I wanted two people to leave Formula <laughs> One, Fernando and Kimmy. I got fifty percent of it. <laughs> yeah, but we still haven't heard what's happening with Fernando and IndyCar yet. I know. We got to be getting close to something. One could hope, but you never know. So Suzuka was the opportunity. Well, actually, post Suzuka because it happened in Paris, was the opportunity for a very big meeting. So, the World Strategy Motors Group met. Actually, it was the World Motorsports Council. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the World Motorsports Council and talked about several topics. Um, the calendar was obviously one of them, the number of, of races. Uh, there was talk about points and, and reallocating points and rethinking how, we, how points are done. Po other potential changes to the weekend. So what we know, first of all, going into the to the weekend a lot of discussion about the number of races and we've heard mixed commentary about the number of races um with some of the teams saying that 21 is too many which is where we're at right now um some saying that shockingly particularly franz toast who said that he would refuse fewer than 21 races on the calendar oh wow so for starters, Cyril Abitbull said that he thought that the schedule had expanded way too much um, and that there needed to be a very aggressive cut in the schedule, possibly down to as low as 15 or maybe 16 races total for the year. Whoa. Yeah. Way too many races in his eyes. Um, on the other hand, Franz Toast said, um, no, not really. We should consider going the other direction. Now, he then went on to say that it's not necessarily the number of races or the size. He says it's the show which we offer in a level of entertainment. He goes on to say if you have just 15 boring races, people won't watch anymore. 
Mm-hmm. So he thinks that there should be around 20 to 22 races. He thinks that's a really good number. And he says that in order for Formula One to really be relevant as a global sport and as a global brand, you have to have enough races that support being global. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's not just Europe, and those European tracks are very important, but you also have to be able to support having races in the U.S. and having races in South America and Australia and Asia. And you're not going to be able to have enough races in Europe and around the world if you're down at 15 or 16 races. True. Now, by comparison, you have Christian Horner who says that 21 races that that that's about it we we can't do any more you push more than that he even you know at this point never hesitating to take a shot at reno Mm -hmm. says that he thought that maybe the whole reason that reno thinks that 15 or 16 races is is about the limit is because you know with the new engine limit rules anything more than that they're looking at engine penalties and reliability issues and maybe that's about the most that their engines can do (laughs) Oh, wow. <laughs> he really just can't can't resist taking a shot at them, can he? Even yeah. when they were partners, he can't sh- take a, resist taking a shot at them. Yeah. Now, Frederick Vasseur's position, again, very opposite to Franz Toast's position. Uh, Fred Vasseur says, at one stage, also, we are losing the exceptional nature of the event. The more races you are doing, everybody is used to. And at one stage, we have to keep the exceptional side of the races. For me, it's a bit too much, but I will follow the calendar. I won't stop after 18 next year. Mm-hmm. Which, okay, that makes sense, too. And he does have a valid point. If you're doing a race every weekend, how likely are you to watch every single race? It's it's like baseball. I mean, you have 100 and what, 115, 120 games or more a year. Who watches every single, even the season ticket holders, who watches every single game? Well, that's the ones like, okay, season ticket holders. I think this is a really interesting thought. Season ticket holders in baseball get tickets. If you own the whole season, mm-hmm. you get tickets to something like 70 games, 60, yep. 70 games. Um is it physically possible to go and use your season tickets for every one of those games? I would say yes, but not for most season ticket holders. Right. I mean, that that's the. I mean, it is physically possible <clears throat> to do it because the players show up for all the games. But but is but, the average person going to dedicate to be at the ballpark every time it opens? And that's at least in one location. And, and there are. Some season ticket holders that go to every single game, come hell or high water, they have paid for it, they are diehard fans of their team, and they will not miss the opportunity to go out there, and that's why they bought their season tickets. But I would argue that that's probably the minority of season ticket holders. True. I think you're right. Um, Especially when you live in the area that we live in where weather really does take a toll and when you have 60-something home games, you don't necessarily have to go stick out the baseball game in the snow mm-hmm. or the baseball game in the high uh, rain day. You know, that kind of stuff. You don't have to go stick that out, the wind. But, but when you go by comparison and you look, again, we've got to bring up the Browns at this point. Yeah, it's much fewer games. And you look at the insanity that goes on around a Browns game that it's – eight degrees and snowing and folks are in the lot tailgating eight to 12 hours before the game starts. I don't understand what they wear to stay warm that long. Some of them though don't have to worry about that because they're bringing RVs and campers and party buses and all of that stuff that's providing them that heat. Well, yes, but even still the stadium is outdoors. Yeah, it is. And you know you're gonna if you're gonna go to the game you're gonna be in the stadium for four to five hours, mm-hmm. and, it, and we have confirmed with multiple testing that alcohol is not antifreeze. I disagree there. <laughs> My conclusions, which by the way occurred in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, said the exact opposite. It was just a matter of what you drank. <laughs> okay. Irish coffees make really good antifreeze. Okay. 
Just saying. Anyway, what we do know in terms of an agreement, at least for next year, is that um, there will not be the return of the triple header for next year. Oh, good. Now, that may happen again. They may have to do it just because of how packed the calendar is. The calendar was approved for 19. Okay. Um, so the way that's going to run, the season will start March 17th in Australia as normal. From there, we'll go to Bahrain for round two, round three in China, and then to Azerbaijan, which will be April 28th. From there to Spain, um, Monaco, May 26th, the Canadian Grand Prix, June 9th. From Montreal, we go from one French-esque-speaking country to another. French-speaking country? Yes. <laughs> real French-speaking country. Because I think the, the real French don't consider French-Canadian real French, would be my guess. Okay. But we go to, to Paul Ricard, June 23rd. Uh, a week later to Austria for the Austrian Grand Prix, July 14th for the British Grand Prix, um, July 28th the German Grand Prix, and then the first half of the season will end August 4th in Hungary. Uh, F1 will return from the summer break September 1st, as usual, in uh, Spa, then go to Monza the week later. Uh, September 22nd will be Singapore. A week after that will be the Russian Grand Prix in Sochi. Uh, return to Suzuka October 13th, and from there, October 27th, F1 will go to Mexico City. Right, because they're flip-flopping. Right. November 3rd will be U.S. Grand Prix in Austin. November 17th, the Brazilian Grand Prix. And then on December 1st, we all get a puppy in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> We're getting a puppy! <laughs> yeah. So that's what... The 2019 season will be looking like, and we'll produce a calendar later in the year. Well, probably early next year. Probably the week before it opens in March. Another topic of discussion was around points. This idea of uh, instead of ending the point structure, structure at 10th place, expanding it to 15th. Okay. There was no agreement on that. If they were to do it, it would be for 2021. Definitely would not happen in 2019. Okay. Where the big disagreement came in was maintaining an appropriate point structure and separation between the levels. Got it. Um, you know, right now, when you're down at the bottom, there's a one-point difference. Well, that's not going to work for 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. So they had to stretch that out a bit. That would have meant a big jump because you had had to go the whole field. You would have had to change the point structure. So a big jump for first. And they're like, we already did a big jump when we expanded down to 10th in like 2010 when they restructured the points. So do we really need to do this now? So they haven't come up with a good agreement on that. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I see a huge need for this. I don't have an opinion on this one just yet. But again, my one opinion I will declare is it really starts to feel like we're trying to fix F1 without actually going after what the problem is. Well, yeah, it's not necessarily a points thing. In this case, it should be a financial distribution case. Mm -hmm. And distributing prize money past 10th place as opposed to points past 10th place. Right. Being fair. And then the other piece of that you got to wonder is, okay, if you're signing drivers that get bonuses or anybody, any team personnel that get bonuses based on the points that a team earns in a season, and now you're about to blow the lid off the number of points that are available to a team over the course of a season, how does that impact your compensation packages? Oh, I'm sure that there is. I would hope that somebody has written that if there was a change in the point structure that there would be a corresponding change in all the contracts. I would hope somebody has that clause in their contracts. But That, that might be happening now, but that may not have originally been the plan. But here's the thing. are they going In order to go down to 15th place, are they going to have to raise first place from 25 points to 30 points yes. or something like that? So, okay, so now there is more points on offer. I was trying to figure out how more points were going to be on offer. Yeah, basically 
all the way up the the ranking table, they were going to have to change the point values to make sure that there was still a separation between each potential finishing position and appropriate level of value to that separation based on where you stood. So you still want to get clearly a lot more points than the guy in second place if you're in first. Right. You don't want one point difference between all of the places. Right. So they couldn't get an agreement as to what that structure should look like. So that is not happening for 19. Still a potential for 2021, but we're not sure. It's not clear that's going to happen. I still say... Fix the other problems with Formula One, income distribution, prize money, and on-track racing, aero dependency. Fix those before you start mucking with qualifying and points. Well, there were some other things that have been tweaked. Some were needed, some maybe not. Um, one of which, um, there's a new position that has been agreed upon for rearview mirrors. Because okay. um, there's obviously a visibility issue with the halo. Also, agreement on new camera mounting points. Again, problem because of the halo. Um, we don't know exactly what those locations are going to be yet. We think it's going to be on a couple of the – we talked a, a couple yeah. weeks ago some proposed locations. It looks like that's what they agreed upon. Um, and also, uh, lights are being added to the rear wing end plates specifically for rain. Um, and there's going to be minor modifications made to the halo fairing to help with driver extraction. Um, drivers will now only be allowed to overtake after a safety car period once they have crossed a, quote, consistent point, according to an FIA statement. Now, previously, they'd only been allowed to do so at the safety car line. This next one, I think, is a little troubling. Okay. Only because I'm not sure I trust the teams to pull this off. I think I think they may have just introduced a loophole. So teams will also be made responsible for the initial scrutineering of their cars and must declare their cars comply with all safety-related matters. So you're allowing the teams to do some level of their own scrutineering and certifying that they did their own level of scrutineering and it is appropriate. You tell me that somebody's not going to fudge a scrutineering certification here. Well, yeah, but they still are going to wind up. It's first level. I mean, they're still going to yeah. wind up going in front of scrutineering. They still are, but I think they may have just turned around and opened up, especially as they watch what these later levels of scrutineering are doing. If they're not double-checking the team's work... Mm-hmm. the teams are going to take advantage of that every single time. It's what they do. Yeah. Um, the, the use of a checkered light panel at the end of the race alongside the traditional flag has been approved, and for 2020, the team personnel curfew will increase from eight to nine hours. Okay. The other thing that was done, and, and this was just – a note this wasn't official rules changes and that was that a report on security procedures to be put in place for next year's brazilian grand prix was presented to the council following meetings between the fia formula one and the local authorities well i hope so because i'm getting tired of hearing that you know they got held up in brazil yeah now in response to all of these discussions some of the drivers were asked, and of course, Lewis was very happy to comment on it. Oh, was he? Yeah. Um, what he says is that probably we, sh- we should, yes, we should be looking at, at changes to the format of the weekends, but not for every weekend. Oh, because that won't be confusing. Well, what his thought was is that you take a look at the tracks and the races that are known for providing fairly boring races. Those are the ones you look to make the changes for the weekend on. Mm. So maybe at, say, oh, Baku, that's where you put the reverse grid in. I still don't believe in reverse grids. It, it, no. I, I think you need to take a look at GP2. GP2, because I believe GP2 is doing it. There is a series that's doing it, and it has had an impact on the quality of the racing. 
Okay. Whether or not it's a po- positive impact is, I think, up for debate, and you've got to watch it. But that that's kind of what he's talking about is, you know, there are some tracks where the race is just boring, and those are the ones that maybe there should be some changes done to how the race is presented. Maybe that's where you take out the regular qualifying and you change that into a sprint race. Mm. Things, things like that. You look at ways to, to mix it up without trying to do major construction on the track. Yeah. So I, 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 it's a thought. I just have a concern that, you know, if we start changing rules by track, that A, it'll cause an asterisk to go on the season, and B, that it will be confusing to the fan base. I don't think it could be any less confusing than Double Dobby. Double Dobby was stupid. So what Lewis said, he said, I think one of the biggest changes that needs to be made is that at the moment, it is the same four days every weekend for 21 weekends every single year pretty much. I think it needs to be dynamic. It needs to be different for certain circuits so you have a super weekend. There are some tracks where the race is so boring. I remember growing up watching F1 and falling asleep after the start. I'm sure there are people who fall asleep after the start and wake up when they set their alarms for the end. I used to do it when I was younger, and there were some tracks that kept you on the edge of your seat, like I imagined Baku this year. I think it's more exciting this year being in these cars is the best it's ever been, but I'm sure there are still dull races. So picking those ones out and saying, how can we make it different for that race? Whether it is reverse grid or whatever we end up doing, they should look into doing that. Well, I will agree with him. There are many times that I fall asleep after the first lap and I wake up towards the end when you're screaming. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I completely understand, but the roar of the engines lulls me to sleep yeah. every day. Well, not every race. I mean, there there are some that has kept you close. This year, I haven't fallen asleep very much. There's yeah. been some seriously good races this year. So in other news, Max Verstappen. Apparently, he had an interest in um, some motorcycle racing. And he's been told by Red Bull, no. It's dangerous. They it's too dangerous himself. for that. Um, not interested in letting him do that. So he will not, at least for the duration of his current contract with Red Bull, get the opportunity to test a MotoGP bike. Got it. Not happening. Over at Ferrari, I I think after this weekend, Sebastian Vettel has acknowledged that, uh, yeah, he's not getting number five this year. I mean, when the standings are such that really all Lewis needs to do in Austin is get eight points more than Seb, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I think he's acknowledged that, yes, mathematically possible is pretty much we've hit that point. Ferrari has imploded. At this point, Seb says that Ferrari's aim needs to be to prove to the rest of the world that this recent stretch of poor form and crappy strategy calls is not Ferrari and that they can do better and that they are better than what we have seen since Monza. Okay. So here's my question. Okay. I get that they, Ferrari could be better, Mm -hmm. but Seb, you could be better too. Yeah. I, I think he, he absolutely holds a share of the blame. Because several of the incidents that occurred that put him further back down the grid were a direct result of the driver's strategies, <laughs> not the team's overall strategy. Exactly. And maybe the team strategy put him on the back foot, but he's made some pretty poor decisions. Yeah. So I, I, I think that statement applies to both of them. I agree. So in other series... Um, a few weeks ago, Al- actually it was probably about two weeks ago, Alejandro Agog sat down with Nico Rosberg in his loungy whatever podcast thing that he's doing. Okay. Yeah, he's talking to some great people, but oh man, he's not a great host. If, he, <laughs> if you thought we were bad, he's worse. Ooh. <laughs> not really feeling Nico's podcast at all. But he did sit down with the CEO of Alejandro Agog, 
who revealed for the first time how close Formula E came to failing in its first year. Oh. Yeah. Um, so September 2014, um, he had raised and the series had raised enough money to host the first three races. They were able to host uh, Beijing, Putri Yaya, and Punta del Este, um, at which point they were pretty desperate for money. And it was really only at that point uh, being able to get a deal with Liberty Global, who is the uh, sister company for Liberty Media. Okay. Um, same umbrella, obviously. Um, but s sister company for Liberty Media, which owns Formula One, and Discovery Communications. He managed to get them to become significant shareholders uh, at the Miami round, which was two months after Punta del Este. That's what actually pulled them out. It was at a point where um, he owed $25 million to the suppliers, and he had $100,000 in the bank. Oh. Um, they literally ran out of money. He said nobody knew what was going on other than maybe two or three employees with the series. Oh, wow. That's it. Um, he said he had reached the limit. He had to pay the air freight of the cars to go to the Miami race out of his own pocket. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, he did make a bid earlier this year to buy ownership of the series outright. Um, but he couldn't complete the takeover because at this point, Liberty Global and Discovery want to hold on to their stakes. They yeah. want to be involved in the series. They see some. And I think from your experience with Discovery, you know, this is like right up there. They like this kind of stuff. Oh, they do. Especially since walking away from um, from Tour de France mm -hmm. and, and their sponsor, with good reason, walking away from their sponsorship there. This is like right up their alley. Oh, yeah. John Hendricks would be all over this stuff. Yeah. And if you don't know, if you're kind of catching up, A, I'm a former employee of Discovery Communications, and John Hendricks is the founder and minor minority stakeholder in the privately held corporation of Discovery Communications, which owns all of the Discovery uh, TV channels, uh, Discovery Channel, TLC, uh, Science Channel, um, Travel Channel, Travel Channel, Animal Planet. I, I think Planet. they just rebranded to the TRVL. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Animal Planet was in Discovery, a Destination Velocity. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, of things. Back in the ye oldie days when dinosaurs roamed. Ye oldie days, yes. There were like the five main channels that we had that were analog channels. And then they had all these digital networks right. that they were selling off to the cable companies that did digital stuff. Because that wasn't mandatory back then. It was wild to watch that happen. Well, they did that. And then they took the same strategy with HD. Mm-hmm. Um, but then keep in mind, it's expansion beyond that. There's an educational division of Discovery. There's an entire like product division of Discovery. Um, there is a, a store for Discovery Online. There used to be mall stores. Um, there are no more. Yeah. But there used to, there's all of those different arms, and there's event pieces to Discovery Channel. It's quite an impressive organization. Um, but entirely privately held, and John Hendricks does own a small piece of it. He sold it in chunks throughout the years. But when I was there, he still owned a couple of percentage points of the company and really controlled the direction of the company. Mm -hmm. What was it? Comcast was the other shareholder at the time? Um, there was a venture capital group that uh, the members of which were kept entirely private. Ah. I thought there, I thought one of the media companies had a share in it too. I don't believe that um, there had been a piece of time that uh, John had really held out from having anybody that owned any stake in cable companies um, from owning a part of his business. That was one of the ways he had built his business was by doing business with the cable companies but not letting them own him. Um, and he was the pioneer. If you want to know how he got to be the mogul that he is, he was the pioneer of bundling channels. Mm. So he really pushed the cable companies. They wanted Discovery Channel. That was a packaged channel that they wanted in their basic cable packages. And he said, well, if you want Discovery Channel, you have to take all of these other channels. And that's how TLC got its, its foothold and the Travel Channel and the Animal Planet got their foothold in basic cable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, he wouldn't allow them to cherry pick his, his channels. It was, you took all or none. And this was the price. 
So in other Formula E news, while we're still with Formula E. And, and not talking about my history with Discovery Channel? Or, or Discovery Channel in general. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could go to Walking with Dinosaurs. <laughs> you want to do that? No, we're, we're, we're going to stay with Formula E. Um, word that Pascal Verline was actually offered a three-year deal with the Mercedes-backed HWA Formula E team um, and turned it down because he wants to get he's, – he's trying to find any way he can to get back into Formula One. That's why he is completely severing his ties with Mercedes in the hope that Toro Rosso would consider him. Well, that's definitely a gamble move. I mean, I hope it works out for Verline. I really do. I like him as a driver and as a person. But and to turn down a guaranteed drive for... A three-year deal, too. Yeah. And where this three-year offer apparently came out was he did a test earlier this year with the Mahindra Formula E team. Yes, the same Mahindra that advertises tractors and stuff like that in the states that team that group has a formula e team he did a test with them that apparently he did extremely well on mahindra hasn't named their driver lineup yet um hwa which is the mercedes back team approached him and said three years come drive for us and he turned them down wow so i mean it's still possible that pascal could go to formula e um I think if he's smart, he tries to put a contingent in that says that he can turn down that contract if somebody from Formula One approaches him. But, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then our last story. So I thought this concept was dead. Hmm. Truly did. And then word came out this week on oh about four days ago as we record this so what wednesday that in 2019 a motor race an open wheel open cockpit motor racing series named w will be launching and it will be a women only racing series oh really i thought this idea was dead apparently it's not and it's backed by folks like David Cothard and Adrian Newey. David Cothard is a big backer in the series. So is the thought, do you think that the thought is, let's create a series that would give girls and women a shot to drive the big cars, to drive... And if they can compete and their times look like they're similar to the men's, then maybe they could it could become a pathway into Formula One. That's what I think is what the overall philosophy appears to be, and that's how people are taking this news. So what David had to actually say, he said, if you want a fundamental change in the outcome, you need a fundamental change in the process. W is a fundamental change in creating an opportunity to bring through female talent to the highest possible level. Um, the, series aims to, the series aims to attract up to 20 of the world's leading female racing drivers to compete for a $1.5 million prize fund across six races in Europe and will include a round in the UK. The cars will be identical and be provided and run by the championship. Championship will be free to enter, and competitors will be selected through a program that assesses their ability. The winner will receive $500,000 to help further her career, and as well as support and advice from the experts employed by the series. So he then went on to say that um, he believes that women could succeed in Formula One, absolutely. He says, could they be as good as Lewis Hamilton? I don't know. But I do know there are an awful lot of men in F1 who are not as good as Lewis. So if we don't create a platform that may give an opportunity to accelerate that access, then nothing is going to change. So let's loop over to Susie Wolf. Susie, who has created her Dare to be Different Foundation specifically to promote more female participation at all levels and in all positions in motorsport. What she had to say was, I respect anything that sets out to inspire and promote women in motorsport. 
My view on this, and I know that this is the shared position of the organizations I work with, is that we should continue to encourage and create opportunities for women to compete on the same level as men. We fundamentally believe that the best opportunity to identify top female talent is by facilitating a dynamic where more women compete, can compete and rise to the top in a mixed competition on equal terms. And he's right, th and she's right there. Mm -hmm. What I still have to wonder is that would everyone involved be better served to take all of this money, all of this time, and all of this energy that is going to be spent to spin up this series and use that to get these up-and-coming aspiring female drivers at all levels to give them the financial backing and the sponsorship and the the publicity that is needed for them to be signed by the F2 and F3 and F1 teams and is it a matter of they need exposure in a series by themselves to be seen or is it a matter of they need the financial and commercial backing to get the attention that the men are getting I think the question that you have to ask is why are women not rising in motorsport? Mm -hmm. I think that's the fundamental question you have to ask. And I think Cothard and Susie are coming at that question with, an, with two dynamically different answers. Yeah. David Cothard, and neither of those answers I think are necessarily wrong. And I'm going to take an odd position on that in that I don't think that they're wrong. I think Susie is right. The way we get a woman into Formula One is we show an up-and-coming woman that can compete against the men and win. Mm -hmm. That's how you get her into Formula One. I think David Cothard is going even further down than that and saying we need to develop a woman driver that can compete against the men. And the way we do that is by pulling us out and saying – Let's give them funding. Let's let's cultivate a, a culture where we find the best woman mm -hmm. and say, we're going to pour money into her and say, okay, now she can go forth and get the extra help and the support and the publicity to try to get into these, these things. So almost I could see both sides really working together if they figure it out. I, see, see and, and where I, I, where I disagree is – as we have seen in many series with many drivers, the driver who appears to be the best at Formula Ford or Formula Renault or F2 is not necessarily the driver that is going to be the best later on in their career, mm -hmm. is not necessarily going to go into a Formula One and light the world on fire. Well, you know, yeah. again, going back to the Pastor Maldonado, he won Formula 2 and then went into Formula 1, or actually it was GP2 at the time, but he is a GP2 champion. He can clearly a fast driver. He's not a controlled driver, and as a result, when he went into Formula 1, he sucked. Well, you look at Nico Hulkenberg. Mm -hmm. Nico Hulkenberg is my, my <clears throat> prime example. Mm -hmm. He won every series that he was part of Hands down, yep. won every series he was part of and has never won an F1 race. And he's not a bad driver. No. He, he is a fairly competent journeyman driver in Formula One. Mm -hmm. And you need those in any series. I mean, it's just like, again, going back to the stick and ball teams, you've got quite a few teams that don't have a chance of winning a title, but they're fairly successful in that middle range level and they keep the series alive you need that kind of stuff right but 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 that's why I, I i caution to turn around and say find the best woman driver at the junior level and build her up there no i think you need to find just like on, on when it comes to the men you find several perspective talents and you back them up and as they succeed and as they do well, you start to whittle out the ones that aren't doing as well and look for a new perspective. To, and you create a true driver program. Now, to have a driver program that is focused on bringing up women, 
that I think would be better than a dedicated series. You know, you've got Nico, uh, Nico Rosberg created a driver development program that he is backing up and he's looking at the karting levels to back and support drivers and move them up and through. And similar to the, the Red Bull program and the Mercedes program and Ferrari doesn't, their driver academy's I think gone nowhere. But those programs should be open and should be looking to sign and bring women on. And even if you create one of those programs that is specifically focused and the aim is to bring up female talent as opposed to a series dedicated to women, I think you'll make, you'll have a better chance of getting a woman into Formula One and a successful woman into Formula One than this. That's my problem. That's the flaw in my eyes. You will not have a woman in Formula One until you have a woman competing and winning against men consistently at all junior levels. Absolutely, and that, that's why I think that you create a development program, not a series. And in that regard, yeah, I agree with you. Like I said, I think this is two solutions to the same question, and I don't necessarily see them as being opposing. I see Cothard's series as a way of encouraging, uh, exciting, and bringing about the entry into a development program. Yeah, and see, that's the, the one thing we don't know is how they're assessing talent to gain an entry into this series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... Are, are they going to drop them into, say, Formula 2 cars and look at the times and look at the performance in the Formula 2 cars compared to what's happening in Formula 2? Are these going to be unique cars in their own right? Are these going to be lights cars? One of the things that's not clear is what platform these women are going to be racing in and, and how believe- you assess their performance in this series where they're not performing against men against a series against any other series out there but see that's i think the key <coughs> is what we've got to find out is what that car is going to be mm-hmm. because if it is a stripped down dumbed down version of a formula two car or gp3 car or any of those then it's going to fail because the Instant response will be, well, the fastest woman in that car isn't going to be, it can't handle the big stuff. If it is comparable to a Formula 2 car or a GP, even a GP3 car, if it's comparable to that, then you've got some level of ability to compare. But the minute you dumb it down, the minute you change those rules Mm -hmm. is where you're going to make this a failure. Um, and that's where I really hesitate. That's the side of me that really hesitates to say an exclusive series. I like the idea of an exclusive series because it forces opportunity. But it's got to be done with the same kind of rules, the same kind of expectations, the same exactly. kind of car, so that the opportunity can go somewhere. Because trust me, when you look back at the history of any other sport, Mm-hmm. To get women to be able to rise up in those levels and be able to compete, it doesn't happen until they can compete against the men's version. And so I think that that's until they are driving the car that the men are driving, until they are using the great equalizers, then it's going to go nowhere. And, and again, that's why I think a development program dedicated to women makes much better sense than this dedicated series because it is from the ground up at the foundation at the karting level designed to specifically target and develop a woman into the same series that everybody else is working towards Mm -hmm. that that's why i think that would make much better sense and in a way i'm kind of surprised that Susie wolf's program doesn't have a facet that that's doing that or, or looking to try something like that and honestly See, I, I think, think she's going after younger girls right now well once she's going after younger girls but her focus isn't just getting 
women into driver's seats. No, it's, That's it's the other all thing. levels It's, it's, of it's all levels, and she wants them to be mechanics, and she wants them to be business leaders and business owners within auto sports in general. And, and that's notable, too. But to then turn around and say, okay, I want to build out a development program, one that looks at the single-seat side and one that looks at the um, the WEC side and one that looks at IndyCar and is looked to bring drivers up through those series to the top levels of those series, that's where I think there's going to be a benefit. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. And I do believe firmly that it's a matter of time that we're going to get somebody that's going to come up through the process and they're going to set the world on fire and it's not going to be somebody that's just a pretty face. It's going to be somebody that's got some talent and is really going to set the world on fire and do something. Yeah. So that's all we got this week. Okay. Do you think we'll have a show next week? Should we like start making bets yet? You really want to open up that can of worms. <laughs> Just say it. Just remember Either the- we start having a, a meeting and scheduling our time and actually put this on the calendar so that we block time for it, or we're going to start having to uh, Just apologize Just remember right regularly. now the challenge has been your scheduling needs. It is me. So it's you me. might want to be a smart ass about this, but you're the root cause. And on that note, we'll call it a show. <laughs> We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.